We're continuing today our introduction, part two, uh, of introducing uh, ourselves to the letter to the Romans. And uh, so far, uh, you know, folks, we, when, we, when I say the Romans, in the Gospels, when we look at the Gospels, we see a snapshot of the life, the works of Jesus. We see a snapshot of his, of course, his death and resurrection. But it's in the letter to the Romans that we really get to delve deeply into what that death and resurrection means to our lives. We're, we're, you know, the Gospels show us that it happened. Romans is going to really unwrap all that it means for us. When we kind of started looking at this a couple of weeks ago, we got a feel for the, the church there in Rome. People just like you and I, you know, a church in a city, a real city, real things going on. We got a feel for uh, Paul. We got a feel for what the city of Rome was like and just kind of introduced ourselves to all of these things. We saw Paul uh, write them excited about going to visit Rome, going to, to meet the church there, stay with them a while and minister. And then you might remember he was going to go on from Rome. He was going to go west and, and go to Spain, which at that time, from Paul's perspective, would have been the ends of the earth, carrying the gospel to the ends of the earth. We left uh, that, that day, we left that message, and we were praying for a couple of things. Do you remember? We were saying, hey God, could... Could you use our church like that church in Rome? Remember what we learned about that church? It said the Bible says that their faith and their obedience was so well known that churches all over the world were talking about it. I don't know specifically what it was about their faith or about their obedience that would have churches all over the world talking about it, but that's what we're told. And I'm sure a part of it was their witness. that This was a people that knew what it was to follow Christ in a hostile world. They knew what it was to give a witness and to, to pay the price. And that would certainly explain why Paul would feel a connection to him. And so we left that praying, hey God, could we be a church like that? I mean, why, why wouldn't we desire that? And of course, when we say a church, who are we talking about? You. Individually, I've got to be thinking, hey, what's my role in this church to show faith? To obey so that we could be something that would be a model and encouragement to churches everywhere. We left that, that introduction saying, man, God, would you give us a gospel mentality like Paul, like that church in Rome. You know, who next? Where next? No matter the cost. And we, went, and we said, God, would you touch us with righteousness like you did Paul? For some of us during the course of this, he may touch with righteousness for the very first time. Others, for a lot of us, hopefully, will renew and touch afresh with that righteousness. And so we left those, those, that, that sermon, those prayers, man, we don't want to ever be the same, God. We want you to do a great work through this. Now today what I want to do, we were talking kind of all in and around the letter. Uh, today I want to look at the letter itself. I want to do what I call a flyby. We want to fly over the lance like this. So that's what we're going to do. So if I could just have everybody go out the doors and turn to your right, that jet's right out here. Now we can't all fit, so we'll take turns. Uh, and it's going to be just as exciting, isn't it? Gosh, it'd be kind of cool to ride one of those, wouldn't it? I, I don't know if it'll be that exciting. But it's going to be good. Uh, but we're going we're gonna to fly over Romans. 
And, and we're going to see the landscape. We're going to see the pieces and, and how it all comes together. It's really important sometimes to understanding to do that. Because you see, starting next week, man, we're going to get down in the forest floor. I mean, we're going to be looking at the dirt. We're going to be looking at the bark on the trees. We're going to be looking at the leaves and, and all these pieces. Do You know, there's a lot of times where you open up a Bible and you read a verse, you read a paragraph. Man, I can't understand this. What is this talking about? And we close the Bible and I just can't understand it. A lot of times what we've done is we've dived way down deep into the forest and we can't make sense out of it. Whereas if we'd start seeing the big picture, knowing where we are, what this is about and how it all comes together, then all of a sudden the little pieces start to add up. The little pieces start to make sense. So that's what we're going to do today. We're going to get a, a flyover. We're going to do this a lot of different ways. Just like that jet. We're going to fly over, then we're going to bank, and we're going to come back and see it from the other side. Because there's several different ways to put all these pieces together. Go ahead and open your Bibles to Romans chapter 1. Now some of you, uh, I would imagine in here, you have a study Bible. And study Bibles, usually at the beginning of a new book, they give you introductory notes. What I'm going to be talking about today is the kinds of things that you're going to find in those introductory notes. So you may just want to kind of scan down through them, listen to what I'm saying, see if you see some of the same things. Hopefully I don't say anything that's contradictory. Boy, that'd be awful, wouldn't it? But uh, hopefully you're going to see some of that. That's what you're going to find in your introductory notes. If you don't have a study Bible, then maybe you've got some white space there. You know, from the page before the end of Acts or maybe at the top of the first page of Romans. And maybe there's this, some of these things today you'll hear and think, well, that's kind of interesting. I, I want to make sure I remember that. I want to know that as I study this book. And so maybe you'll want to jot down in some of that white area where there's space, some of these notes. Now, the, the first way I want to do a flyover is just kind of get some data about this letter. You know, a letter has an author and a recipient, doesn't it? It's written by somebody and it's being sent to somebody. Well, that, that's true in this letter. The letter's written by Paul, or I should say it's crafted by Paul, put together by Paul. And as he was working on that, a friend of his named Tertius uh, wrote it down. If you get to the end of Romans chapter 16, you'll see a place there in the last few verses where Tertius says, and I took all these words down from Paul. So he's kind of taking dictation and writing that down. We also know that Phoebe... A lady, a friend of theirs, uh, was the one who took this letter from Paul's hands and carried it to Rome, delivered it there to the church. As we saw last time, Paul wrote this letter uh, while he was in Corinth during the winter time. It was A.D. 57. He was staying in a friend's house named Gaius. We talked about him a little bit last time. And so that's who's writing it, where he's writing it from, and it's going to the church in Rome. Now the church in Rome started with Jewish Christians. As a matter of fact, some of those Jews may have been Jews that were actually at the day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit, Jesus had ascended and now the Holy Spirit came down and, and, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit. And so you've got this original group of believers and, and they returned to Rome, their hometown, and, and they're carrying the gospel and they're filled with the Holy Spirit and they start this church. They start sharing the gospel there. And so it starts to grow. Now, it doesn't grow primarily by Jewish Christians. It grows primarily by Gentiles or Greeks. Now, we hear the word Greek and we think of a nation or a nationality. In the New Testament, uh, when you hear the word Gentiles or Greeks, those two words are synonymous and that's you. You and I are Gentiles. We're Greeks. A, Jew and a, a Greek and a Gentile in the New Testament was anybody that was not Jewish. 
So if you're not Jewish, then according to the New Testament, you're a Gentile, you're a, a Greek. And so Rome being filled mostly with Gentiles, non-Jews, as the church grew, it was growing with these, these Gentiles. So a lot of people converting to Christ. The church was, was growing very strong there. And, uh, and Paul was very excited about going there and building a relationship with him. His purpose in writing this letter was to minister to them, was to, to deliver to them the faith. It was to prepare for a visit. And I think maybe also in the back of Paul's mind, there's another purpose that is there. Paul knows, and we get this from the book of Acts, Paul knows that before he goes to Rome, he's got to go back to Jerusalem. And he knows that going to Jerusalem could cost his life. That, that could not go very well for him. And so I think maybe as much as he wants to go to Rome, as much as he wants to carry the gospel further west, I think he's thinking, you know, what if, what if I don't make it? What if I don't get to? And he didn't. He didn't go to Spain uh, because he was he was executed. And so he's thinking, man, what if I don't get to do that? And so I think he's thinking, you know what? I'm going to minister to them now. I'm going to deliver the ministry of the gospel. I'm going to deliver the ministry of the Christian faith. I'm going to send that on ahead of me in case I don't get to carry it there myself. And man, what a church to deliver it to. You know, folks, not every church that opens the Bible is really going to do something with it, are they? And that was true then, it's true today. A lot of churches, that open the Bible, they're not going to do anything with it. There's churches that gathered today for worship, they open their Bible, they don't even actually believe what's in it. So not every place a letter can be sent is going to have any impact. But don't you think, Paul, with what we've learned already, has got a sense of encouragement, a sense of excitement? Man, I'm giving this letter to Rome. Man, I know what this church will do with it. They'll pick that letter up. They'll read it. They'll understand it. They'll study it. They'll live it. And if I don't get to, that church will carry it. That church will carry it west. And so I know there's probably a, a sense of excitement as he sends this letter to Rome. Now, what are some of the, the theological emphases that we're going to see in this? Well, the, the big thing we're going to see is, is righteousness. And, and this letter is about God's righteousness for you. The letter is about how you can have the gift of God's righteousness by faith in Christ. Boy, that's a big deal, folks. Righteousness means you're in right standing with God. It means when you go to that appointment, when you go to stand before God, you can be righteous. You can be in right standing with Him. That's a gift. The reason it's a gift is because without Christ, you're not righteous. Without Christ, that's not going to be a good appointment. That's not going to be a good moment. And so Romans delivers, hey man, there's a gift for you. There's something really incredible for you. You can be righteous. And this letter is going to unwrap all that that means and how we come into it. There's going to be some other key ideas very dominant in Romans. Uh, we're going to see some key words like faith, righteousness, sin, Law, each of those words is used over 60 times, just 16 chapters in Romans, but each of those words used over 60 times. So those are emphases, uh, th those are key theological points that he's wanting to communicate throughout this letter. And obviously those are key words not only to Romans, they're key words to the whole New Testament. We also see uh, in this we're going to uh, see justification. We're going to see the opportunity to be declared righteous before God. To be made right with Him. 
And so you've got those theological emphases. That's one way of doing a flyover. Now another flyover, folks, is just to get some keys. To see the most important things. And so I've, I've also put this up here. Keys to Romans. This would be easy to, to jot down on the first page. You've got the key word is righteous. We've already said that. Key verse 1, 16 to 17. That's the theme of the Bible. We're going to look at that. Uh, not the Bible. Uh, the, the theme of Romans. We're going to look at that in a second. 3, 21 to 25 is a key passage in Romans. And then I've called key chapters 6 through 8. Now... That's a little bit of an opinion. That's my opinion of what the key chapters are in this letter. Somebody else might, might think it's something else. But I think it's right there at the center of the letter. And it's talking about the spiritual life. I mean, isn't that kind of why we're here today? I, mean, I hope it's one of the reasons we're here. And how do I live spiritually? How do I live like a Christian? How do I follow Christ? Folks, chapters 6 through 8 are really going to talk about what's not included in that sin. Man, sin is, is a contradiction to who we are now. It, it, sin is not conducive way of life for us. It's going to talk about how not to walk in sin, how to walk under grace, how to walk in the power of the Holy Spirit and live the victorious Christian life. Another way that we can uh, look at Romans is its contribution to the Bible as a whole. Now, Romans is not Paul's first letter. He wrote 13 letters. And chronologically, Romans is in the back half of his ministry. It's in the back half of the letters that he wrote. But when you open your Bible, it's, the, it's first in line. Right after Acts, we see 13 letters. And Romans is the, is the first one put there. Probably for two reasons. One, it's size. It's the biggest of his letters. But it's also going to become the theological basis that all the other letters will draw back to. Romans gives us the most systematic, the most detailed, the most thorough look at our doctrine, at our beliefs, at the Christian faith, especially some key ideas like sin and salvation. Now, when Paul writes Romans a little bit different than he writes his other letters, he's not addressing a problem. Quite often, when you open Paul's other letters, he's addressing a problem in that church. Gosh, he writes the Corinthians, and, and one of the most repeated lines in Corinthians is, and I've got this problem with you. I mean, the church in Corinth was a mess. Man, they, they, they took every way they lived out in the world, and they brought it right into the church. It was amazing some of the sins that were going on right there among the fellowship, and everybody was just kind of, you know, okay with it, you know, kind of the way it is. Nobody's, nobody really cares, and Paul said, man, you can't be that way. Corinthians had also picked up the spiritual gifts, but they were using them to draw attention to themselves. You know, they had this gift or that gift, and they, they kind of got big-chested, and look at what this says about me. Paul says, hey, the spiritual gifts don't say anything about you. They say a whole lot about God. You know, we don't get a spiritual gift because of how close we are to God or how strong we are in God. Every believer is given a spiritual gift. So he's correcting problems like that. He writes the Galatians. Man, the Galatians, they came to faith in Christ. They trusted in the grace of God. But then they let their natural tendencies take over. I think it's something we can do. And they went right back to trying to work their way into God's favor. Well, you know, maybe if I go to church today, God will love me a little more. Maybe if I go to church today, God will answer that prayer. Or, you know, today I need to make sure I do this and this, and, and then God will be happy with me. Paul says, man, who bewitched you guys? That, that's crazy. You started a walk with Christ by grace. 
You live that walk by grace. You finish it in grace. Never stops being about grace. He wrote the Philippians, very practical issue, and says, hey, you guys are fighting a lot. Remember what Rome was known for? Church in Rome was known for its faith and obedience. The church in Philippi, everybody talked about how they fight. Man, they can't get along. They're bickering. There's people in there stirring up trouble, stirring up problems. So he addresses that. Letter by letter, Paul is addressing issues and problems in the church. But when he writes Rome, he doesn't really do that. You don't, you don't see a passage that says, you know, I've heard this about you or I know this is going on in your fellowship. Uh, we need to correct this. Nothing like that. But rather, I think what you see in Romans is by the time he writes this letter, he's been ministering the gospel for over 20 years. And, you know, there's times he was ministering before a group and there might have been hecklers, people asking questions, people, you know, trying to fight him in that. There may have been a lot of one-on-one questions, a lot of one-on-one discussion. 20 years of doing the gospel. So he's heard the questions, he's heard the doubts, he's heard the fears, he's heard over and over what people didn't understand. And so now in the letter to the Romans, he puts together this apologia, this defense of the gospel. From beginning to end, how it comes about, how it's built, its necessity, its deliverance, and how it's lived. It's the, it's the complete gospel being ministered. Another contribution of Rome is, man, the Romans, this letter has a great impact on the church. Maybe more than any of Paul's letters in history has Romans affected the church. Just one little historical illustration of that. Martin Luther... It was his study of Romans that ultimately led to what you and I now call or refer to as the Protestant Reformation. I'd say that's a pretty big thing in church history, wouldn't you? And it was the letter of the Romans that kind of got that going, got that started in in Martin Luther's life. So this is a, a book that has a profound impact inside the scriptures on believers life and on the church. Another way we can get kind of a, a fly over and see Romans is a is a uh, outline. And I've put an outline up here for you. Now, if you've got a study Bible, again, you should have an outline in that. You'll look down, you'll see probably a little bit more detailed outline than mine. Mine's kind of simple for today. Uh, Just giving you the Roman numerals. Remember that from grammar? Uh, There's no A or little a or one and two, but your, your outline may have that. I always encourage when you're studying a letter of the Bible, a book of the Bible, get an outline. An outline's like a road map. Again, like I said, we open it up. Man, I don't understand this. A lot of times, if we just understood where we were in this letter, what's going on in this section, what it's about, all of a sudden it starts to become a little bit more understandable. So I always encourage you to have an outline. This is just the major pieces. we got an introduction and a conclusion. Again, you see that key word, righteousness, because every section of Romans is about righteousness. Our need for it, the imputation, big fancy word, it means how we get it. It's going to be imputed into our lives. It's going to be put. How's that righteousness going to be put into our lives? The demonstration, the vindication, the practice of that. And they'll leave that, uh, the media department will leave that up there for a few moments. And uh, uh, the the three of you who are taking notes can write that down on the first, first page of Romans and get those major pieces Another way we can do a flyby is just to kind of kind of talk through Romans and what we find there. If you open it up, you find chapter 1, and it sounds just like the beginning of a letter. You see a to, a from, a concerning. It kind of has that in the, in the opening verses. And then you get to chapter six or verses 16 and 17, which is the theme of the letter. You're going to see three huge things in that verse. Righteousness, salvation, and faith. 
Those are going to be dominant ideas all the way through this letter. And then as you move from the theme, really about to the end of chapter 3, that whole section is about condemnation. Boy, that, doesn't that just get you excited to get back next week and start studying condemnation? No, probably not really. But folks, it is crucial that we understand we're condemned. Outside of Christ, without Christ, we're not doing okay. Our future is not okay. And Paul is going to build the case. He's going to build the evidence of our worthiness, our deserving of being condemned. And he's going to go through and he's going to look at that mankind as a whole. He's going to look at it as individuals in our lives. Why each of us is deserving of condemnation. Again, not a very present, uh, a very pleasant thing to look at. But I think Paul's idea is very simply this. We have to really get a hold of, we have to really understand the bad news, condemnation, before we can really appreciate, enjoy, and take on the good news of justification. And so Paul's going to lay this groundwork. He's going to show how we have all rejected, we've all rebelled, we're all worthy of condemnation. And then as we move into chapter 4, we're going to see God begin, or the key word, be justification. We're going to see how God begins to move to solve our problem. Now folks, when you stop and think about that right there, God moves. You know, just that statement is a picture of, it's evidence of God's love, God's grace for you. Do you realize He doesn't have to move? You see, because we don't understand condemnation... Our tendency is to think, God owes me this. I, I deserve a chance to be saved. I deserve a chance at heaven. God should do this. God should do that. You know, I, get a, I should get the chance to get to heaven and, and make a case for myself and, and point out how good I did and I did the best I could. And, and you know what? God should honor that. You see, the reason we talk like that, the reason we think like that is because we don't understand condemnation. Folks, I'm telling you, these first three chapters are so key to understanding everything else that is going to go on. But when you understand that you deserve to be condemned and then all of a sudden you see God moving, He's not obligated. He didn't fail us. There's not some uh, insufficiency on His part that obligates Him to, to move. Folks, the failure is all ours. God revealed everything that we needed internally, externally. He stacked the odds in our favor and we rebelled over and over and over. And the evidence is everywhere. But God moves. He moves to correct that problem. And we move into chapters 4 and 5 and we're going to see justification. Not a warm, fuzzy term. It's a legal term. That word justification, we're going to see when we get to those chapters, is God legally declaring you righteous. It's an incredible thing when you've just realized how worthy of condemnation you are. Now you're going to see how God will declare you innocent. You were guilty, but God's going to declare you innocent. You were unrighteous. You were not in right standing with him, but he is going to declare you righteous. Now, we want that. But if you stop and think about it, you think, well, how's that fair? How is that just for God just to, you know, kind of wave his hand and all these guilty people become innocent. I mean, if I'm the guilty person, that's fine that he does that for me, but not not for some. I mean, we've all got some people we'd prefer not be declared innocent, right? Yeah. I mean, you know, think about it this way. If you're in a court of law and you're the victim, do you want the judge to just go, uh, it, it, it's no big deal. I, I just decide they're innocent. 
No, you, wait a minute. No, I want justice done. So how is justice being done when God just ups and declares us innocent? Well, we're going to see that justice was accomplished at the cross. A penalty was paid. The demands of holiness were met in the person of Jesus. Now, his righteous, perfect life is going to be imputed onto ours. We're going to study that word and what that means. Folks, here's what it basically means. All my debts were paid for by Jesus. All the riches and assets of Christ were deposited into my account. And when I go now and stand before Christ, when I go stand before God, I look like Jesus. And that's a pretty cool thing, isn't it? Let me tell you something. If you think it's cool, you're not going to believe how cool it is after you've spent three chapters understanding how worthy of condemnation you are. The love and the grace of God is incredible. And that justification is going to produce reconciliation. And as we walk into chapters 5 and 8, we're going to see we've been reconciled. I am a friend of God. I, I was an enemy. I was rightly condemned. But now I am a friend of God. Of God, And we're going to see, how do you live as a friend of God? What is, what is a, a person who's in the position of being a friend of God, what's their life look like? What, what do they do? What do they not do? We're going to get a picture of that. Then we come to chapters 9 through 11, and that's kind of a parenthetical statement. We kind of stop, and, and you could almost pull this piece out of the book, because it kind of takes on something different. There's all this revelation about righteousness and salvation and, and relating to God. And, and somebody could raise their hand and say, now wait a minute, for 1,500 years, salvation has come through the Jews. God revealed Himself to Israel. Israel was His chosen people. Where, where's Israel now? Where, where's Israel in this plan? And 9 through 11 are going to talk to us about where Israel is. And I'm not talking about geographically. It's going to talk to us about where Israel is and, and what kind of relationship we have with them and what God is going to do in that. And then we come to chapter 12 and we get a hard shift because for 11 chapters, we've been building a basis of what we believe. But chapter 12 is going to take us then into how we are to live. Folks, it's to change our lives that we've taken on the gospel. You know what? We don't go to heaven because we live a changed life. But if you've genuinely been saved, you're going to live a changed life. If you've genuinely been saved, every area of your life is going to be touched. And as we walk through 12 and 13, it's going to talk about what that touch looks like. How does it, now that you've been saved, how does it affect your relationship with God? How does it affect your relationship with society? How does it affect your relationship with government? How about your neighbors? Every relationship, everything out there in life is going to be described now that I've been rescued, saved by the gospel. Then we come into chapters 14 and 15 and Paul kind of concludes with our freedom. We have great freedom in Christ. But you know what we have a tendency to do? We become selfish with that freedom. We've done it in America, haven't we? And, and in the Bible, Christians, they pick up that freedom and they think, oh, well, man, now I can sin because I'm forgiven. I'll just go out and sin at the end of the day. I think, God, I'm really sorry for doing that. And I'm forgiven. And then I go right back out and do it again. I've been forgiven. Does grace free me to sin? Paul says, man, that's crazy. You're not rescued to return to that which killed you. You're not saved from something to return to it. You are free to live righteously. 
You're free to love and to serve God. You're free to love and to serve people. So we're going to see the freedom. Man, we're no longer restrained by rules and, and orders and trying to make an angry judge happy. We're free from all that. But it's a principled freedom. There's a way to live out that freedom. Folks, I tell you what, one last thing I want to do in, in getting a flyover of Romans. I just want to read some of it to you. I want to pick out a couple of passages or some of my some of my favorites, not all my favorites. As a matter of fact, one or two of my favorites I'm not, I'm not reading, but but just kind of walk through. And I want you to hear this. And as you hear it, remember, this is a real letter. Don't don't we have a tendency to look at stuff in the Bible and just make it something like completely different from us? Kind of weird. Oh, you know, it's a real letter. It's written by a real person. It's written to real people who live in a real world. They're dealing with all the same issues you are. As they get this letter, they're sitting there thinking, man, how do I follow Christ in a, in a world that hates me? In, in a world that's hostile to Christianity? And, and while I'm doing that, I'm trying to raise a family and I'm trying to run a business and pay bills. And, and they're people just like you. This letter arrives in a real world. Just listen as Paul, a real person, just listen to some of these pieces that we're going to be learning about over these next uh, couple of years. <laughs> Romans chapter 1, verse 16. For I'm not ashamed of the gospel. Boy, can you imagine for them to hear that? When these people... I mean, everybody who heard that may have very well had a family member that's been fed to a lion because they claim the name of Christ. And they hear Paul say, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because it's God's power for salvation. To everyone who believes, first to the Jew and also to the Greek. For in it, God's righteousness is revealed from faith to faith. Just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Chapter 4, verse 20. He, the he is Abraham. Abraham did not waver in unbelief at God's promise. You ever waver? You ever think, man, I'm just not sure I, I believe that. I'm not sure if God's going to keep His promise. I'm not sure if God can keep His promise. I mean, he said he's going to return, but it's been over 2,000 years. Is he still doing that? Do you ever waver? In yeah, the answer is yes, you do. We all do. But Abraham says right here, Abraham did not waver in unbelief at God's promise, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God because he was fully convinced, fully convinced that what he had promised, he was able to perform. Therefore, it was credited to him for righteousness. Now, it was credited to him was not written for Abraham alone, but also for us. It will be credited to us who believe in him who raised Jesus, our Lord, from the dead. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we have been declared righteous by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Man, folks, if you're in Christ, you're at peace. No fear, no wondering, no doubts. Don't, don't have to wonder what's going to happen. I'm at peace. Everything is okay between me and God. Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God proves His own love for us in that while we were sinners, while we, while we were rebelling, while we were rejecting, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Romans chapter 6, verse 10. For in that he died, that's Jesus, for in that Jesus died, he died to sin once for all. But in that he lives, he lives to God. Hey, you too. Consider yourselves dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. 
Romans chapter 8, verse 1. I think maybe the sweetest verse in all the Bible. Therefore, no condemnation now exists for those in Christ Jesus. Man, if you've learned chapters 1 through 3 and you understand everything that's in there to hear those words, no condemnation. I have no fear of what it's going to be like to go and stand before God. No fear of being condemned. Now, you have to be in Christ, right? And as we go throughout Romans, those two words, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, in Christ, you're going to hear it repeated over and over and over. Are you in Christ? Romans chapter 8, verse 15. For you did not receive a spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father, in the Greek language. It means that you and I went from being condemned to being hostile to God to being in a position where we can now call him Daddy. You imagine that? Because of the work of Christ, we get to call the Almighty, the living God, Daddy. The Spirit Himself testifies together with our spirit that we're God's children. And if children, also heirs. Heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, seeing that we suffer with Him so that we may be glorified with Him. Romans chapter 8, verse 38. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will have the power to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Folks, nothing can separate you from Christ's love. Not even you. You're a created thing, aren't you? There is nothing, there again, in Christ. Are you in Christ? Well, how do I get in Christ? Romans chapter 10, verse 13. It says, for everyone. Now, some of us have dismissed ourselves from everyone. We think, man, God couldn't love me. You know, if God knew about folks, he does know about you. Well, if somebody ever tells God about this thing in my, he already knows. And somebody will tell he's got it covered. For everyone, whoever you are, wherever you've been, whatever you've done, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will, not might be, will be saved. Romans chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, I urge you. Paul's urging you. Take this as a personal urging, a personal appeal from Paul right to you. I urge you to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and pleasing to God. That's your spiritual worship. Don't be conformed to this age. Don't, don't think like the world thinks out there. Don't act like they act. Don't talk like they talk. Don't have the priorities and desires they have. Don't be conformed to be like them. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you may discern what is the good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. Romans chapter 13, verse 8. Do not owe anyone anything except... To love one another. For the one who loves another has fulfilled the law. Folks, I cannot wait to unwrap these verses. And all the verses around them. I can't wait to unwrap them and see what God has for you in these. What He has for me. What He has for our church. Folks, God has been incredibly good in giving us the Bible. He's been good in giving us the letter to the Romans. You know why He gave you this letter? Because He loves you. 
And He wants you to spend forever with Him in heaven. And without learning and applying what this, te- this letter teaches us, that's not the direction we're heading. We're not heading to a place of enjoying His love and forever in heaven with Him. He loves you and He sent this so that could be different. Let's pray. Father, we come before You right now and we dedicate ourselves, we dedicate all the Sundays in front of us, Lord, to study this great letter You've given us. God, we want to understand it. So we dedicate our mind, our eyes, our ears to study, to learn, to be devoted, to be here, to work at it. God, we dedicate our heart. We want to be passionate about what we learn. We want to leave here with no greater desire than to put into practice what we've learned today. Father, we thank You for Your love. We thank You for the offer of a gift that will enable us to forever be right with You. We thank You for a chance to call You Daddy. Not because of how good we've been, but because of how good Jesus has been for us. Lord, I pray You're going to do a great work in my life, our lives, in this church as we learn everything You wanted for us in this letter to the Romans. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.